Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. Hard to believe we are now into the middle of August. Well, what do you know? We are now at the very, very end to signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution. I know when I was on the air with you all last, about three nights ago, I told you all that we would probably do about two more podcast uh, sessions to um, the topic that we've been uh, discussing about since late June. Well, I decided and somehow was able to fit in one uh, more presentation. In other words, what I thought would take two podcast sessions will now only be one. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being able to simplify things as long as you can um, strategically plan them out to where you know that you may not have to um, require uh, multiple uh, sessions when you know that you can fit everything towards the very end in the home stretch in one episode. Well, as they say, all good things have to come to an end. Sure, I could have fit in a few more episodes with this discussion, but I feel that I'm at a point now where uh, where it does need to come to an end, but for the right reasons, because eventually I will be in the works of starting a new series with all of you, my fellow listeners. I'm sure many of you all are thinking to yourselves right now, okay, what is there left to talk about in signing their rights away? Well, I'm, I'm going to give you all a good surprise Is it fair to say that we've covered just about everything there is? Yes, but there are, but there is something that is missing. So let's get to the root of what it is that we're missing and see how it ties in to everything else we've talked about, but how this issue is crucial to understanding just how um, fragile this period of time is because, as I've said before early on, we were always led to believe that everybody came to Philadelphia for just a short period of time. Everyone came together and realized that, hey, you know, yes, we need a new form of government. Um, and everybody just went their happily ever after way. That's wishful thinking, but that's not the story. If that were the story, then there would be no need for me to even have been on here telling you the real story that we have learned and have uncovered since I first began sharing it, sharing it with you all from late June. So our, um, we're going to start off with two bonus questions. The bonus question number one is the following. How many states sent delegates to, seven, to the 1787 Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? Well, we all know there were 13 colonies that came together to declare their separation from England in 1776. But did all 13 states send delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? The answer is no. Well, did New Hampshire send delegates? Yes, because we talked about New Hampshire. That was our first, uh, the first state we talked about. After all, New Hampshire was the ninth state that ratified the Constitution, which made the document an, an actual legal binding document. Did we talk about Massachusetts? Did we talk about Connecticut? Did we talk about New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, New Jersey, Virginia, North, South Carolina, and Georgia. Did we talk about all those states? Yes. So we talked about 12 states already. So that means, folks, that 12 states, the 12 states that I mentioned, they were the ones that sent delegates to the Constitutional Convention. So what state didn't send any delegates to Philadelphia? Was it Vermont? Was it Kentucky? Was it Rhode Island? Or was it Tennessee? Well, for starters, uh, Vermont's not even a state just yet. But they will be in a few years after the Constitution gets um, approved, but also shortly after George Washington becomes president. Well, are Tennessee and Kentucky? What about them? Same thing as Vermont. They'll get admitted into the Union not long after uh, Washington becomes president. So that leaves us with only one viable answer. 
Rhode Island. So believe it or not, folks, Rhode Island is the only state that didn't send any delegates to Philadelphia. I'm sure, I wouldn't say I'm sure, I already know for a fact that all of you are scratching your heads and wanting to know why did Rhode Island not send delegates to Philadelphia? What were they so hesitant about or what were they so uh, leery of? Well, I'm here to tell you all that, that information. I'm here to tell you all what I truly felt was appropriate and necessary to share with you all as to why Rhode Island was so reluctant on sending delegates to Philadelphia and why they held out for as long as they did. Or the Rhode Islanders, rather, I should say. Well, for starters, um, Rhode Island always seemed a bit reluctant when it came to building a stronger union with the other states, a.k.a. the 12 states, whom had ardently supported separation from England, which led to the creation of a new nation, the United States of America. Well, Rhode Island did want separation from England. However, Rhode Island, even though Rhode Island wanted separation from England, Rhode Island still wanted to be its own little entity. What do I mean by entity? Its own sovereign state. In other words, Rhode Islanders didn't believe in anyone else telling them what they should and shouldn't be adhering to. Doesn't this sound like a little bit of extremism, political extremism, where, say, a libertarian or a, not to get political here, but, but what we know as someone who is a bit of a, an extremist, like, you know, who could be to the far right and say, hey, you know, the government can't be telling me what to do all the time, so uh, I, I, want, I want to do things differently on my end. So, yeah, that's where a little bit of uh, where where an extent of extremism comes into play. But I think it would be fair to say that perhaps maybe not everyone in Rhode Island is ex is a bit of an extremist. I mean, there are Federalists in Rhode Island who who are in favor of the Constitution. But then you have um, anti-Federalists that we will learn be learning about here in a little bit whom are very, very leery and skeptical of what this new document entails. But after the British surrender at Yorktown in 1781, as well as the Treaty of Paris in 1783, America as a new young independent nation was faced with an, an enormous debt crisis, which by 1784 stood around $40 million. I'll repeat that number again uh, later on, but I will uh, reshift the focus back to Rhode Island here in a moment, but it is important to discuss a little bit of history leading up to 1787 and why Rhode Island did not send delegates to Philadelphia because the history before 1787 and the early years of the post-revolutionary war era is uh, crucial in understanding why Rhode Island didn't send anyone in 1787. You know, $40 million of debt is a lot of money for 1784 standards, but one thing I can say is that is that $40 million, I mean, while being in debt $40 million as a nation is an insurmountable uh, hurdle, I would not be afraid to say that that pales in comparison to where our nation's national debt stands in today's time. I mean, our... I hate to say this, but the United States' national debt stands in the trillions. And I don't know if I will be alive to ever... I mean, I don't know if I will ever see in my day and time when our debt would be completely eliminated 100%. It would, um, it would be something if that happened, but I just don't know if that ever will. So, yes, to be in debt by $40 million versus being in debt in trillions of dollars. That, that's a huge, huge difference there, to say the least. But just before the British surrender at Yorktown occurred, the Confederation Congress, sometime before 1781 ended, members of the Confederation Congress, most notably of James Madison of Virginia, he was one of the leading um, proponents behind uh, getting an amendment um, 
introduced that would um, that would be added into the existing uh, governing document, aka the Articles of Confederation. This new amendment would go about um, giving the national government the power to impose a five percent um, impost. And what is an impost, folks? I don't believe many of you all know what it what an impost would mean, but I do know that there are um, a lot of synonyms out there, meaning that would have the same uh, connotation or meaning. Um, so I did a little research on the word impost. As a matter of fact, the first time I came across the word was when I read Chris DeRose's book, um, Madison versus Monroe, that I had done a podcast on last year. Um, the Bill of Rights and the election um, that saved the nation. Well, James Madison, as I said, uh, was one of our, uh, one of our, um, obviously for one, he's one of our most significant of uh, forefathers when it comes to being the, um, especially when it comes to being the founder or the father of our Constitution as well as the founder to our Bill of Rights. But before 1787, Madison introduces a measure being um, a, that would give the national government the power to impose a 5% impost, and impost meaning a charge, assessment, duty, a fee, tax. In other words, this impost was meant to establish new to establish new measures behind getting um, additional revenue that would help pay off our existing debts. Well, do you all think that uh, Madison's proposal succeeded? No. Uh, there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, any new amendment to the Articles of Confederation required consent from all 13 states. Okay, so what if 11 out of the 13 states approved of a 5% impost? Would it still go through? I would like to think yes, but sadly, no. That means there has to be unanimous consent on every issue, on every amendment brought before um, the Articles of, uh, brought before the Confederation, of, the Congress of the Confederation, that is. Every amendment brought before members to the Congress of Confederation had to not only be approved upon unanimously, but delegates from every state had to approve of it just so in order for it to become a law. So think about it. There again, if you have 11 out of 13 states in favor of the impost, that's a majority right there. But it doesn't become an, effect, an actual law because two states decided to do the opposite. One of those states was Rhode Island, folks, that voted against the 5% impost. The other state at the time in 1781 was Virginia, where I live. And I know that it really upset Madison, not just so much because Rhode Island voted against it, but his own home state did. Madison was probably kicking himself left and right, wondering, what is it going to take, especially from, for people of my state, which is not only the largest state in the Union, and, and knowing that it, it has not only the most to gain, but the most to lose, what, what's it going to take for people in my state of Virginia to rethink um, things because we can't keep living like this because if we do, it may come to the point one day from now where government itself may no longer exist under this fledgling system, a.k.a. Articles of Confederation, and how right Mr. Madison was. So Rhode Island's refusal to support the 5% impost duty on imports led Congress to not being able to do exactly what? I may have said it a moment ago, but I'll say it again. Pay interest on all outstanding debts. You know, it's one thing to pay debt off, but how about paying the interest off as well? And when you pay the interest off, if you, if you let's say your interest rates are 10%, by paying the interest off over time, not only are you paying your debts off, but the interest, late, interest rates go down as well. You know, it seems like the Rhode Islanders at this time are demonstrate some of the same behaviors that 
a fair number of people in today's unstable society go about engaging in. Of course, we didn't have the same population like we do nowadays, or perhaps the same levels of accessibility like we have now, but let's keep in mind that there were people in the post-Revolutionary War era who were selfish in their thinking, who didn't believe that that a new government needed to take the place of what was already in, in existence. There were those who were so fearful of giving any power to the national government that if they did, that their lives would be ruined forever. I would say they were crazy, all right. Now, 1784, as I said earlier, 1784 saw America's debt reach $40 million. But here, I would like to provide you all with the breakdown. Because when we think of, some, when we think of an entity like our federal government being $40 million in debt, we'd like to think that it's just all in one category. Well, I'm going to break it all down for you folks and let you all know where, in fact, our debt stood per uh, categories. Eight out of the $40 million that we were in debt, eight million, that is, was owed to the French and the Dutch. Wasn't France our ally in the American Revolution, starting around late 1777 after um, General Horatio Gates defeated uh, British General John Burgoyne and his forces at Saratoga, New York? Yes. That was the decisive victory that, that got the French involved not only in the American Revolution, but being on our side as allies. Remember, the French are wanting to get payback for what happened um, as a result of their being defeated by the British from the Seven Years' War. It wasn't so much that they lost the war, but they had to give up everything that they um, uh, that belonged to their that belonged to them settlement-wise, especially uh, territory that was west of the Appalachians that now belonged to England. Yeah, I could see if you're a French person that, yeah, you, you want to get payback on the British. And the Dutch, um, believe it or not, John Adams uh, was very instrumental in going to Holland to secure loans in order for America to be able to stay afloat financially. You know, people, you know, foreign entities, kind of like the International Monetary Fund. Remember, we didn't have an International Monetary Fund during this, that time, but going somewhere like Holland um, might as well have been like the equivalent of an international monetary fund system because there were nations in Europe at that time where people could go to to secure loans and, and over time be able to find ways to pay, those, um, pay that money back that was lent to them at a specified interest rate. So the Dutch were uh, very kind to lend us money just to stay afloat, but that didn't mean that uh, we were exempt. We had to find a way to pay it back. If you think $8 million is high, how about $11.5 million that was comprised of domestic debt and government bonds? $3.1 million had to do with certificates on interest indebtedness and $16.7 million for continental certificates. Well, we've learned this before. Silver, for example, had far more had far more value than paper money. You know, paper money might be worth something one day, but its uh, value would depreciate the next. And we all know that if you lived in Virginia and you took your paper money to North Carolina or vice versa, the neighboring state will not wouldn't so much not be able to honor your money but it wouldn't be able to recognize its value because it doesn't hold the same value in North Carolina, say, as it would in Virginia, if you were living in Virginia coming south to North Carolina. So during the Revolutionary War, you have, you know, each state has its own paper money, but even that is worthless. So we're, we really are at a crossroads financially just to be able to survive each day and be able to perform the most basic of governmental duties, which has become no picnic onto itself. 
And I should point out, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Virginia voted against the uh, impost um, increase in proposal in 1781. But Rhode Island was not the only state to vote against proposals like a 5% impost duty. Other states voted down um, proposals that were essential not only to running the government, but perhaps proposals that were revolutionary that would have reinvented things to where the national government would have been given a little bit more flexibility than what it had been previously denied for so long in the post-revolutionary war under this fledgling form of government, a.k.a. the Articles of Confederation. Was Rhode Island still operating as an entity, or rather a separate entity, even after the U.S. Constitution took effect March 4, 1789? Yes, and I should point out that March 4th of 1789 is an important date because that is when the United States Congress first convened. I will admit I did learn something new because I was always under the assumption that the United States Congress did not officially first convene until after George Washington had been elected president. However, it probably would make sense that, um, that Congress would have began convening that is, the first federal Congress would have began convening before Washington became president because even in today's um, modern um, government, in modern times rather, I should say, Congress convenes before a president gets um, inaugurated again to serve a second term, and Congress also convenes before, a, before the new president gets sworn in. So, I think it's fair to say that it was the right thing for Congress to convene before Washington became president because by doing so, it gave people a good sign of optimistic, optimistical hope that government could function, that government could begin to start doing some things right that had not been able to have been done under the uh, previous system. But as for Rhode Island, the state became reluctant still to give up um, such things as its own paper money that was issued in Rhode Island pounds that, were, that, were, that was used to pay off its Revolutionary War debt. Well, why would Rhode Island be so reluctant to give up its own paper money? Well, the reason for that is because so many in Rhode Island opposed draconian measures such as direct federal taxation as well as congressional terms for membership. Well, when I think of congressional terms for membership, I think of like the qualifications that um, go to, that are required to serve in the House as well as in the Senate. In the House, you have to be at least 25 years of age, and you have to be a natural-born um, you have, yes, you have to be 25 years of age and you have to have lived in the United States for at least uh, seven years. As for um, being in the Senate, I know that you um, have to be at least 30 years of age or older and you have to have lived in the United States for at least 10 years. Those are just some of the 101, um, 101 criteria for, um, serve for House and Senate qualifications. As for becoming president of the United States, you must be at least 35 years of age, you must be a natural-born citizen, and you must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. One thing I can tell you about that qualification right there, about living in the United States for at least 14 years, the reason um, that measure, being for 14 years, is uh, in play is because in the years after the Revolutionary War ended, during the post-Revolutionary War era, and leading up to Philadelphia, many in Congress wanted to see just how committed people were to uh, not just being an American, but being faithful and living in their country, and not um, and not doing and not and not engaging in what had uh, taken place during the Revolutionary War. That is, those who were loyal to the crown. What did they do? They left. They left in exile. They either went to Canada, they went to the Caribbean, 
and many slaves who wanted to be loyal to the crown went um, to the Caribbean. Um, some even went as far north as Halifax, Nova Scotia, and some went to um, to uh, the Republic of uh, Sierra Leone in Africa. So, for in order for one to become president of the United States, that third qualification that you must have lived in the United States for at least 14 years, many of our forefathers wanted to see just how uh, loyal people were to their country, but by being loyal for all the right reasons and not engaging in um, actions that would lead to um, questioning one's uh, loyalties that would result in um, traitorous acts like uh, treason, for example. Was Rhode Island was the Rhode Island State Legislature from 1785 to 1790 controlled by a party labeled as anti-federalist? Yes. Do you think that this could have been a big dilemma and why Rhode Island was ultimately the last state to sign the to ratify the US Constitution, given that it had not sent delegates to Philadelphia in 1787? The answer is yes. The party that controlled the state legislature was known as the Country Party, whom led the way behind opposing the U.S. Constitution, US Constitution's ratification, as well as causing political unrest under the Articles of Confederation. Well, you know, when I think of anti-federalists, I don't think of them as being um, pro-mercantile. Those who were... Um, ardent supporters of the mercantile system were primarily along the coast. How about those living in Boston? How about those living in Philadelphia, Charleston, South Carolina, maybe Savannah, Georgia, just to name a few, um, and um, New York City, just to name a few, um, a few uh, prominent cities who um, who have earned a reputable image for being um, top uh, port cities with lots of commerce coming in and out of their cities. Well, Rhode Island is, uh, especially Providence, Rhode Island, and perhaps Newport, Rhode Island. Of course, when I think of Newport, Rhode Island, I think of the Gilded Age era that will come much later, not to get off track, but that's what always comes to my mind, that period from 1870 to 1915. But even Newport and Providence, Rhode Island, are leading port cities of their time. But at the same time, anti-federalists are those who favor a weak central government. They are very afraid of what the federal government would have the power to do, like, you know, imposing taxes. How about raising and maintaining an army and navy to regulating commerce, not just interstate going from, say, New York to Maryland, but intrastate commerce and even foreign commerce. Intrastate being from point A to point B in, in the state you live in. So this country party opposed the Constitution, and I'm sure, you know, it's one thing to oppose something, but I think it'd be good to find out exactly what, why this party opposed the Constitution the country party opposed the Constitution due to uh, civil liberty concerns. When I think of civil liberties, I think of individual liberties. So civil liberties regarding distrust behind the strong central government, devoicing concerns against government infringement upon whom had the right to issue paper money. You know, when I think of civil liberties, how about like, you know, making sure that my right to free speech isn't violated or the right my ability to assemble and petition peacefully without uh, causing a ruckus that would present a clear and present danger to other civilians nearby. To me, that would be a greater concern versus um, infringement upon whom has the right to issue paper money. But of course, if I lived in Rhode Island, maybe I wouldn't have known anything different at this time, at the time that all this was going on. But it is fair to say that Rhode Islanders are very attached to their paper money. 
and there are other and there are people out there who are so attached to certain things that if you try to uh, tell them to think differently on an issue and I think we're probably all guilty of this to an extent but there are some who are probably more severe than others that they will go off the deep end if you try to persuade them to do something differently and maybe that was the same thing with uh, people in Rhode Island the country party always was fearful over whom had the power, especially if the national government was located far away from all local levels of government. Well, you know, in 1789, our capital is in New York. That's just, I mean, New York City is south of Rhode Island, but at the time, maybe it's fair to say that Rhode Islanders do see New York City as being far from them. Rhode Islanders want local government to have the greater authority. Well, local governments can have authority, but they can't dictate what goes on via the national level. Sure, local governments can say, hey, you know, let's have, let's write to our congressmen about, uh, about this, about a particular matter that might impact the state as a whole, but but before it could even probably get to the national level, maybe the state ought to look at it as a whole. And if the state can't reach some unanimous agreement, then yes, you could talk to your talk to your congressman about it to see what how. Of course, in 1789, Congress people were all men, but in today's time, yes, talk to your congressperson about how he or she would how he or she would think is the best approach to a problem that um, is on the local level because hey there's nothing wrong with going to someone high above but of course at this in 1789 Rhode Islanders aren't interested in that they are still primarily interested those who are in control the anti-federalists they are in control of um, and they have this uh, I me myself uh, attitude so I'm sure we're all wondering now what is it going to take for Rhode Island to finally get on board like everyone else. I mean, North Carolina waited till November of 1789 to ratify, and thank heavens they were smart enough to put aside their personal interests for the uh, greater good of the country. One religious group in Rhode Island suffered uh, significantly. Was it Methodists? Was it Presbyterians or Baptists? The Baptists. Why would the Baptists have opposed the Constitution, considering they were the largest religious denomination in all of Rhode Island? Well, for one, Baptists had been severely persecuted in Rhode Island. Well, that's something that Virginia doesn't have a good uh, legacy on in uh, leading up to um, this time. Uh, Baptists were the largest dissenting group in Virginia, and Baptists were persecuted and treated, what do you call it, treated um, unfairly on all levels, especially by those whom had adhered their loyalties to the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. Baptists were jailed, all in the name of teaching the gospel in ways that were unbecoming to the Anglican faith. Baptists obviously were doing the same thing in Rhode Island, and so for many Baptists, what was lacking in the Constitution? A Bill of Rights. And if there was one element that Baptists wanted more than anything in terms of a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, it would have been entailed um, needing personal liberties. How about like personal liberties like religious freedom, a.k.a. freedom of religion, the freedom to worship, uh, or how about the right to worship freely without any interference from church and state? So that's what Baptists, I could say, well, Baptists, I, I've learned uh, back early on in the summer when my wife and I were in Williamsburg, we uh, listened to a man named Gowan Pamphlet speak. I may have mentioned his name from a previous podcast, but Gowan Pamphlet, his last name was Pam. he took the last name of Pamphlet because he was inspired by Thomas Paine's pamphlet, famous pamphlet, uh, Common Sense, that was written in 1776. Gowan Pamphlet was a Baptist preacher. He was the first African-American Baptist preacher in colonial America. 
And he told us that 11 out of the 13 colonies prohibited Baptists from preaching. So what does that tell you right there about Baptists? This wasn't a Virginia problem, nor was it a Rhode Island problem. It really was about 99% of a national problem. Well, thank heavens the Bill of Rights comes along shortly after the first Congress um, convenes. Well, the first U.S. Congress proposed the Bill of Rights in September of 1789, and the first ten amendments were added to the Constitution two years later in 1791. And, we, of course, we have James Madison of Virginia to thank for uh, playing such a leading role and seeing to it that the uh, Bill of Rights got introduced because the Federalists folks in Congress, they really were skeptical about these Bill of Rights. They pretty much said, look, why don't we um, wait and just do this another time? We've got more other pressing issues to think about, like creating cabinet positions, which were important. But James Madison was adamant on a Bill of Rights being put into play because he said this, that if we don't get a Bill of Rights in now, then who's to say that our Constitution might still be around, you know, 10, 25 years from now? And I think he, and I have no doubts on my mind that Madison was right about that because, you know, we couldn't, we weren't able to incorporate everything in Philadelphia a few years earlier. But after the Constitution was ratified, then we could start talking about the new stuff like a Bill of Rights. See, there's a thing called time and there's a process, folks. You know, not everything can be done right away. But if you clear a couple of hurdles first, then you can make, then you can start making way for new ideas like, or proposals like a Bill of Rights. Did Rhode Island, did the Rhode Island State Legislature delay the Constitutional Convention more than once? In their state, that is. Yes. There were 11 instances where delays took place. Eleven instances, folks. Wouldn't it be fair to say that Rhode Island might as well have been living in anarchy if they couldn't come to grips? Well, I will say that an act of God did take place on May 29, 1790, just after, just a year after Washington had been sworn in, or George Washington had been sworn in as president. May 29, 1790, by a thin margin vote of 34 to 32. You talk about a thin margin vote there, folks. I mean, the vote in Virginia was thin margin, but Virginia obviously had more delegates at their constitutional convention. Rhode Island became the 13th and final state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. The state's first U.S. senators were seated on June 25th of 1790. And, you know, I said early on that... Uh, that a majority of the Rhode Islanders were so adamant on keeping their paper money as their primary source of legal tender. Well, for some country leaders, they ended up becoming bankrupt in large part because the federal government refused to recognize Rhode Island's money as legal tender. Well, I, I hate to say this, but maybe some people get what they get for being ignorant. Just give certain things up. I mean, the whole legal tender issue, it, it's trivial. I, I think that is far more trivial compared to um, being concerned about civil liberties, especially as the Baptists had been so vigorously persecuted to the point where they knew that the only way that their personal individual liberties on religious grounds would be upheld would be if there was the right to worship freely, a.k.a. freedom of religion, without any interference from church and state. I would definitely say it truly was an act of God that the Rhode Islanders finally did come to their senses and ratify the Constitution. You think about it, folks. Um, I, there were about five states... Let's see, New Jersey, uh, Maryland, uh, uh, rather, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and um, yeah, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware 
And um, there were a few states in 1787 that uh, went about uh, ratifying the Constitution. So let's uh, just do a quick uh, recap here. I think that'll help out. Uh, that'll help uh, clarify a few things here because it's been a, it was an interesting uh, sequence, nonetheless, of how the states went about ratifying. So yes, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey in 1787. We have eight states that ratified in 1788, starting with uh, Georgia, then going to Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Hampshire, South Carolina, I should say South Carolina, then New Hampshire, Virginia, New York. Then, of course, 1789, North Carolina became the 12th state. And because Rhode Island ratifies the Constitution, making it the 13th state, the Constitution is in effect throughout the entire United States. So up until um, May of 1790, the Constitution's in effect only throughout 12 of the 13 states. But given now that it's um, in effect in all 13 states, making Rhode Island the 13th state to do so, the Constitution has achieved a perfect union. How do we wrap all this up, folks? I mean, it's been an amazing uh, ride, to say the least. And I feel like having shared this book with you all now has, has had all the more significance in large part because my wife and I were in Philadelphia last month and seeing all the history around us, visiting it in Philadelphia's historic district, including uh, Constitution Hall, it, that experience alone... And sharing what I've shared with you now has become all the more uh, relevant. Sure, I could have shared this book last year, but I don't think it would have held the same significance as it has now, especially knowing I was in Philadelphia last month. So how do we finish this uh, series? Well, here's the epilogue that I came up with. And um, let's, um, let's listen here, folks. Starting from scratch is never easy, but even our forefathers had to start from the very bottom in order to make the inevitable a true reality. Six years prior to 1787, in October 1781, the Continental Army under General George Washington achieved the improbable by defeating the British at Yorktown, Virginia, under Lord General Charles Cornwallis's command. That is, you know, J Lord... General Charles Cornwallis commanded uh, the British. The British surrender at Yorktown was monumental, but the post-Revolutionary War era also helped bring about governmental reform from within as an assortment of high-profile men, high-profiled men rather, banded together as one by recognizing just how many flaws existed under the Articles of Confederation, which in their eyes was deemed irrelevant. Well, James Madison was one of those men, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, just to name a few uh, prominent uh, men. Perhaps it's fair to say that what took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania from May to September of 1787 had been coming for some time, especially in the aftermath of infamous rebellions like Daniel Shays' 1786 rebellion up in Massachusetts. Our, for, our forefathers knew right there, especially George Washington, that in order to preserve America's future, something different had to go into play that was so grand it could last for many years to come. America's, America's Constitution is almost 234 years old, and she has withered many trials throughout her existence most notably the January 6th riot at the United States Capitol, the insurrection that, um, that I'm not afraid to say this, that, uh, that, you know, Pearl Harbor, as Franklin Roosevelt said, December 7th, 1941, a day that shall live in infamy. I can say January 6th of 2021 is a day that, sh that ought to live in infamy because never should anything like that ever happen again and I hope that it doesn't but it's up to us 
as a nation to see to it that nothing like that ever happens again. But to this day, our United America's Constitution, or rather, but to this day, she still serves as an instrumental document for how democracy ought to function, even when government for and by the people has hit a rock in the road. America's Constitution is the oldest Republican governing document in the world, and yet it's not perfect, but it still remains the best out there today. And even Benjamin Franklin would say, this, would say that if he were still living. Remember what Benjamin Franklin said? It may not be the perfect document, but it's the best we could do. In other words, it's not going to guarantee any of you all a Cadillac. It's not going to guarantee you top of the line anything. All it can guarantee you is a 101 playing field, a 101 base, a 101 guide as to how to go about improving upon the document in the years to come. And that's what our forefathers intended it, intended for it to be. They knew that a Bill of Rights should come into play, but they couldn't do it right away in 1787. And of course, that's why you had some signers, some men, most notably George Mason, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, whom refused to sign the document because there wasn't a Bill of Rights. But even those who did sign knew that, hey, this document was not intended to please everybody, but what it was intended to do was to serve as a governing instrument, a governing vehicle that would um, give our people and its leaders a proper way to go about governing in general so that not one branch would have enormous powers over the other. All three branches do have their powers, but they are um, guided through checks and balances. And you know, we live in some turbulent times. One thing I am very thankful for is that I can get up each morning and know that I have a that I um, live in, live in a home and I have a roof under my um, I have a roof over me. I um, am thankful to know that I have a, a government that is um, democratic. That power is not placed in the hands of one person, a dictator, you know, a dictator who could put people in jail against their own will without any uh, without any uh, probable cause. I'm very thankful that uh, we have a document that's still been in existence for almost 234 years, a document that still can that still serves as a beacon or a beacon of, of hope even in dark times. So we may not agree with everything that's going on in Congress right now. Yes, there is partisanship, but let's just be thankful that we do have a government that out there that, that has existed for a long time, and let's hope that it still will be around for future generations because democracy is a fragile form of government, folks. It's one of the most um, fragile ones to preserve because... Um, you know, not every nation in the world does democracy. There are countries to this day who operate differently. That is dictatorships, because that's the only way they know how to be governed. And of course, when you remove a dictator from power, what do you replace him, him or her with? Of course, when we removed King George III from power, Many people wondered, hey, what are we going to replace him with? Well, that's the story I shared with you all. The story wasn't so much about ousting a king, although declaring our separation from England in 1776 was monumental, but the Declaration of Independence was a document that talked about just it talked about severing ties from the mother country whom had ruled upon us for many of years. The Constitution is a document that explains 
how our government was to be set up, how our government was to be run, and how our government was to be preserved for the present and the future so that it would remain a government that would be for the people and by the people. Well, thank you for um, listening to me on with this series. It has been a, an amazing journey, but I can honestly say that every other um, topic that we have discussed has been a phenomenal journey because all of you have been faithful listeners and will continue to do so. I know that you all will continue to get the word out to those who would like to podcast and, or would just simply want to learn more about subjects like the one that I have done in this series. Well, I look forward to being back on the air again soon. I'm not sure when it will be, but when I am on the air again next, it will be a new series. So continue to fasten your seatbelt. Continue to um, learn whatever it is that you didn't know before. And better yet, remind yourselves that it's always good to not miss out on anything. I have a former teacher of mine, former elementary school teacher of mine, who uh, taught me many, many years ago. But I've still kept in touch with her all these years since my time from Robius Elementary School days. And she always said to me, and I don't say this to brag, but it's a very um, flattering remark. She always said the following, Kirk, you don't miss out on anything. Well, my intentions were to never miss out on anything. And that's why I enjoy sharing with you all what I know and what I have learned through history while, yes, it's not always pretty, but just being able to share it with you all and knowing that there are people out there who are willing to listen and be able to take what I've shared with them and they, in return, have uh, been able to apply it to um, new settings. So I'm here for the long run, and I will make sure that I do my best not to miss out on anything that's relevant because if I... Don't, because if I end up missing out on stuff that is relevant in terms of historical significance, then I guess I only have one other person to blame, and that would be myself. But anyways, thank you for your time as always, and um, I look forward to being back on the air again with you all as always. Take care and stay safe.